0: Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, You've come to the right place. Hello, and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney.
1: And I'm Toby Eunice. Thanks for joining us.
0: Tonight, we're going to be getting into Chapter 5 of A Gypsy's Kiss, A Treasure Hunt Adventure, and talking about the theme of the chapter, as well as any additional stories that may come up. But first, Toby wants to share something with you.
1: So, I want to share our storyteller with you. Uh, when we were at Walla Toa. Toa on the uh, Jemez Indian um, reservation, uh, they had a gift shop there and they had um, pottery made by some of the uh, pottery makers on the Pueblo. And of course, there are the more traditional pottery and each Pueblo has its own style, not only in the type of pottery it makes, but how it paints it. But almost every uh, uh, Pueblo has a tradition of something called the storyteller. I don't think I can hold it. I'm I'm shaking because I'm afraid I'm going to drop it. And the storyteller is always a woman. This one has a veil on and she has two children, a shawl, not a veil she has two children sitting in her lap uh, a little girl in the back and a little boy in the front and her mouth is always open like that uh because she's a storyteller and so we thought it was appropriate for us to have a storyteller since um we are we think of ourselves as storytellers i do want to point out that at uh, at her side here is a piece of pottery and that piece of pottery is done in the design that is prominent uh in the hemis Uh, at Hemes Pueblo. And each Pueblo, um, I think there are 18 of them now, 18 contemporary Pueblos. There are also 18 ancient Pueblos. Uh, But there are 18 contemporary Pueblos, and each one of them has their own style uh, and uh, design ethos for their pottery. Uh, The type of pottery they make, uh, the clay that they use, the styles that they paint with, the paint, the pigments that they use, etc. So... We thought we should have a storyteller.
0: Yeah, it's very cool. And if you're interested in seeing the uh, the day trip that we took when we found this piece of pottery, go check out our channel, New Mexico Day Trips.
1: And look for Jemez.
0: Yeah. Now we're going to get into Chapter 5. I need to clear my throat. It's called Saturday Morning. The Christian Brothers provide the boarding students an opportunity to make a little pocket money by performing chores around the school, the dormitories, and the cafeteria on weekends. My favorite is getting paid to buff the long hallways on the first and second floors of the classroom building. My friend and fellow bandmate, Oscar Smith, and I work together on Saturday mornings to sweep the halls. Then he assists and allows me the joy and fun of buffing those hallways to a mirror polish with a buffing machine that is bigger than me. In a very short time, I learned to move the big buffing machine to the right by lifting the handle ever so gently and then back again to the left by pushing down on the handle. Then I take a step back and repeat the process while Oscar collects the electric cord behind me and sprays wax from a can on either side of my feet. I love the crescent moon shapes of pure reflective finish that I leave behind on the hallway floor. I always imagine that after arriving on Monday, my fellow students will look down and admire the handiwork of my shiny crescents. I consider repetitive work like this an ideal opportunity to clear my mind in a peaceful, free-flowing Zen meditation. However, today, Oscar wants to talk. Oscar, one of the boarding students from California, with blue eyes, blonde hair, my height but more slender, plays rhythm guitar in our band. He stops me just as I'm about to turn on the buffer. Hey, Mike, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? I ask as I turn to look at him. Why are you here? I mean, my parents sent me here to get me out of Orange County and away from the people I was hanging out with. But your family lives here, right? Yeah, they do. Then why do you board at St. Mike's? I don't get it. I really don't get it either. I guess my mom thinks it's what's best for me. She's pretty religious. I didn't cut it at seminary, so this is the next best thing, boarding with the Christian brothers. I suppose. But why not as a day student? Oscar and I think about that for a minute. Don't get me wrong. It's not a bad place to live, he adds. Sure, it's not bad as long as you don't mind beans and cornbread on Fridays. (laughs) We both agree with a wry chuckle. There is more freedom here than I had at home, Oscar says. Freedom? You think there's more freedom here? I don't see how that can be true. Yeah. At home, I had to check in with everybody all the time, and they were always judging me and my friends. Here, I can be myself, hang out on the roof, and talk about life with the other guys, and nobody gets bent out of shape about it. The roof is where the boarding students go to smoke. The Christian brothers know about it, but let it go as long as they don't get noisy. Oscar continues, I can always talk to Brother Alan if I have a problem. I could never talk to my dad since he was always working and traveling. Then when he was at home, he was playing golf. If we ever did talk, it was more of an interrogation than a conversation. I see your point. Nodding to indicate the conversation has come to a close, I turn on the buffing machine and we get to work. We're almost done with our buffing when Brother Allen yells up the stairwell at us from the first floor. Brother Allen spent 20 years in the United States Navy before becoming a Christian brother and carries a little of that saltiness with him. Are you girls ready to play some real men's baseball with me, or are you going to stay up there and whisper sweet nothings to each other, he teases. I'll see you salts out on the baseball field, Oscar yells back at him. Give us 15 minutes, Brother Allen. We'll be there to beat you at your own game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. Get on down here. We're already wearing our Converse high-top athletic shoes. Our jeans and T-shirts are enough of a uniform for this pickup game. Oscar and I clean up after ourselves, putting the cleaning supplies and buffer away before heading for the field. We arrive at the baseball field just as Brother William and Brother Allen are lining up to choose teams. So what do you think is the theme of this particular chapter? Um,
1: the, uh, the realization, either contemporary or otherwise, the realization that there's a reason he is where he is. Right. It may not be that he agrees with it, but it was done uh, by his mother in what she believed to be his best interest. So she's not being cruel, she's not doing it out of cruelty. She's hoping that um, the influence of the Christian brothers will help make me a better man, you know. Um, So the theme is the recognition that your parents, generally speaking, are acting in your best interest. And it was just as true for Oscar as it was for me. His parents sent him off to a, a all boys Catholic boarding school because he was living in Orange County, and in the 1960s, Orange County was, you know, fast, free, and loose. Came, they, they came, the, the ones that came from the East Coast and the West Coast came from very wealthy families. Um, and But they were the troubled children in their families as well. And so their hope was that the Christian Brothers, and what, what, what they found, like most of us, was... Uh, I say brotherhood, but exclusive of the Christian brothers. There's a brotherhood, a camaraderie, that results uh, when people of similar, maybe not similar financial backgrounds, but similar similar situations. Right? They're sending you here because they can't figure out what to do with you there. Um, and it turns out that for the most part, uh, they were smart. Uh, they were funny. They were talented. I mean, I was the only member of our band that wasn't a distant border, right? They were all from either the East Coast or the West Coast, and I could still name all of them. I wouldn't do that to them, but <laughs> but yeah, they were all very talented, very smart. Um, uh, the Christian Brothers divided the world up into A, B, and C. So the A class was the top line. The B class was the mid-level. And the C class was, we'll tolerate you being here, but you better work your butt off, you know. And um, they were all in the A group, you know, in the A class.
0: I feel like the uh, this was a chapter about opening up your mind to new perspectives. Uh-huh. Uh, when Oscar asks you those questions and you are for the first time forced to answer out loud why you were there as a boarding student Mm -hmm. gave you that opportunity to think through it and then come up with an answer where you may have just had it, you know, floating around in your mind before that and just kind of wondering, but never, you know, putting those thoughts together into a cohesive sentence of any kind. Um, And some people need to have conversations with other people in order to come to conclusions like that, uh, breakthroughs even. And then of course he uh, gave you the idea that there's a lot more freedom here. And you were like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought I had pretty good at home and I could just kind of go to on, go off on my bike for a weekend and, and had a lot of freedom. And uh, so you weren't thinking there was a lot of freedom in this situation. Um, and then I think it opened up your mind a little bit to impossible You know, difference of ideas. And it could be, you know, true. It was true for him, Oscar, Um, whether it was true for you or not, was something for you to figure out.
1: So, not many of the boarding students, the people, the, the gentleman that I boarded with, knew that my father had passed. Uh, So, And we didn't talk about parents in that way. They were always always generically parents, my parents this, my parents that. But the other thing that was important was uh, you talked about your life in the context of other boys' lives who may not have grown up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who didn't grow up in New Mexico, period. They came from California, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida Um, with all kind of the same situation. Their parents needed to do something with them because they were afraid they couldn't do anything with them. Mm -hmm. And so you had that in common. Uh, and the point that you make about the freedom—yes—if I was at home, I'd have the freedom to go off on a biking weekend. But I would've done it by myself, and I would eventually have to come home and face the music for having done that without telling anybody. Um, so the the freedom was was a uh, ethereal; it it wasn't real. It was your interpretation as a 13, 12, 13, 14-year-old of what you thought freedom might be like. Uh, In reality, uh, your freedom comes when you start meeting other people with uh, like interests, like minds. Uh, Some of the best conversations I started having about life came from conversations that I had with other students as a result of our studies. You know, because always it's always in the context of what your experiences are, whether it's government or you know uh, uh, any of the courses that we took that 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 high school students take um, was always in the context of you could go back that night and instead of dealing with the other kids and dinner and homework, you could go back to the dorm or where or up on the roof, and you could have these serious conversations that you might eventually have in college anyway. It was like that. I don't want to call us. We weren't the beat generation, but we were that generation where I learned to start having conversations and the, and and then learned from the conversations because I realized not everybody thought like I did. And uh, that's where that idea that the more you talk with people, the better person it makes you, you know, if you can have those conversations, because they bring something different to the table. Most of the kids that came from the East Coast came from families that I would say were, at the time, the classic definition of conservative Republican. You know, and so that's, they had grown up, and that's where their ideas came from. What was interesting is most of the kids that were coming from the West Coast had grown up in families that were liberal Democrats. And so almost everything that we... Talked about in the evenings had some sort of influence that came from that, and you could start debating it. And that's when we started with it. We, Nobody back then was cultish about their politics. Uh, we were all open to the possibility that somebody had a better idea. The, you know, one of the interesting things about that period's politics, is, and not many people know this, for as bad a reputation as Richard Nixon had as a conservative Republican. He did more in terms of environmental protection than any other president before or since. Now, he was doing it for selfish reasons because he was running against Democrat uh, Edward Muskie, who, uh, who was oriented towards environmental protection. So he wanted to put himself in a position. The EPA would not exist were it not for Richard Nixon. And so we would have those conversations. Look what Richard Nixon has done. And and of course I was always like, yeah, exactly. Look what Richard Nixon has done guys, you know? So uh, those were the beginning of the kinds of conversations that have continued through the rest of my life that enable new learning, new experience, uh, new reasons to try and do different things.
0: So I'm hearing you say that uh, you went to school at St. Mike's St. Michael's in Canada. uh, St. Michael's, what was it? It was just
1: St. Michael's High School. High School. and uh, St. Michael's All Boys High School. Okay.
0: And because it was a boarding school, and it accepted kids from all around the United States, you had a much more cosmopolitan student body than any other school in Santa Fe, probably than in New Mexico.
1: There was another school... Uh, And it was an academy, St. John's, and it was based upon um, the, uh, have you ever heard of the, what are the, the great books of the Western world? And the entire curriculum was based on, and I think at the time there were 57 of them, uh, the 57 great books of the Western world. And it was similar in this, the, the difference was it accepted boys and girls. And uh, it was way more expensive than St. Mike's. And so it attracted a certain number of kids from out of uh, Santa Fe and New Mexico. We had European students. Mm -hmm. We had South American students. We had Asian students. One, the whole time I was there. (laughs) Uh, um, There were no, we had one black student, but that was because Santa Fe was just, we only had my recollection is that we only had one black family in uh, Santa Fe and actually they weren't black as much as they were, they were Cuban Mm -hmm. and they had immigrated. Um, So we had, we had influences from all around the world and uh, those experiences of other kids from other cities and States and uh, financial situations and other backgrounds, you know, uh, was a, a great kind of eye-opening realization that there is something other than Santa Fe. You know, and that's where, I don't know if I do it in this chapter or not, but there was a point at which I I started thinking about every time they talked about someplace, they talk about Florida. And I think to myself, whoa, blue-green waters, I'm flapping up on these white beaches. And my, You know, I had never been to Florida. The closest I've been to the ocean was when we'd go to California to go to Disneyland and things like that. And it, and it was beautiful, but the way they described Florida was like, oh, man, I have to, I have to get there. And then when they talked about New York, uh, the big city, you know, Manhattan and the lights and the tall buildings, oh, man, I have to get there. Of course, the Christian brothers were always talking about New Orleans and, and the food and the people and the music. And, oh, I have to get there, you know. Um, and I feel like had I been stuck uh, in a, a, as a day student – because my mother insisted we go to catholic schools so the likelihood of me ever atel- before college I didn't attend anything but catholic schools but at the end of the day I'd go home like everybody else mm-hmm. so your conversations were limited to your family unit you know right and at uh, st mikes your family unit was from all over the world and with completely different experiences than you having grown up in santa fe i mean i was literally the small town kid
0: did your brothers go to St. Michael's?
1: Uh, no, neither. I think I think Vincent went one year, and that was the last of his high school. And I don't think Paul even continued after the eighth grade. Neither one of them continued. Um, and And then two years after I graduated in sixty six, by sixty eight, they were co-ed by. 70, they were no longer boarding students. When Jason went back to go to St. Mike's in his senior year, because my father graduated there, I graduated there, and he wanted to graduate from there. So he came back. And um, by the time he got back, uh, it was over there on Zia Road. You know, it wasn't downtown anymore. And it was co-ed, and it was non-boarding. So he graduated from complete. And his graduating class was like 400. Hmm. So mine was...
0: 107,
1: I think. Mm -hmm. So it was completely different by that time.
0: So it sounds like it really set you up for a lifetime of adventure because you got to meet people from all over the world and have conversations with them and deep conversations rather than just homework or what's for lunch, but actually talking about where they had lived and what their families were like. What they did in their spare time.
1: You know, the other night you and I were talking about libraries, Mm
0: -hmm. you know, school Mm -hmm. libraries.
1: Some of the most interesting conversations I had in high school occurred in the library because we'd go there to do our homework because it was hard to do in the dorm. So we'd go to the library to do our homework, and invariably some conversation would start up, whether it was related to what you were talking about, you know, what you were studying. Mm -hmm. If you saw someone who was working on, you know, your world history, uh, your class in world history, you always popped up with the, what, what's this whole thing about? Why did Spain become a fascist country, you know, etc. And that would lead to this marvelous conversation where there's five or six people sitting at the same table, working out the same conversation, working out the same problem with a conversation that's going back and forth, you know, without... Uh, without any uh, preconceptions of what they believed, whether they were Democrat, Republican, you know, whatever, what it, whatever it was, you could have, you knew you could have a conversation that wouldn't be influenced by your preconceptions. And as a matter of fact, I recall very distinctly. His name was Danny. He always got into conversations, and he had a preconception of the of having been Spanish. And not that he was any more royalty than any of the other Spanish kids, but he had this preconception that the heroic conquistadores and things like that. And he even kind of walked, he grew a must, a early mustache, I remember. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't quite unbearable, um, but you didn't end up talking to him long because there was always that's, that kind of Spanish influence uh, that uh, that came in. And of course, the truth was You know, you could be just as embarrassed about having your Spanish heritage based on what the Spanish did, well, you know, in the early years here. Uh, But he made it like, no, Danny, that's not what we were talking about. There was a (laughs) a lot of those. No, Danny, that's not what we were talking about. Okay. We were talking about fascist Spain. All right. That's where (laughs) we're at. We don't care about your royal family. Thank you. It was always fun.
0: So another theme that I have seen uh, throughout your stories is when you were a kid, you liked to play with boys, uh, made up things like army and Uh army more than anything, you told me, right? Absolutely. More than cowboys and Indians or more than cops and robbers. It was always army. Uh Uh, Then you got into this situation where you were boarding with young men all of you um, working on the same goals. Uh And then of course joined the army uh, as a young man. And uh, again, common goals, camaraderie, brotherhood, that seems to have been a strong theme in your early life. Uh, Eventually you ended up by yourself, but (laughs) in your early life, it was all about being a part of a group of boys or men.
1: So I, I, I don't think of it as being part of a group of boys or men as much as I think of it as being a part of a group with common needs, uh, common goals, common objectives, and at least some bases in the fundamentals of uh, civility, And that's kind of what I liked about that. I liked that it it was like playing sports. You know, you were with a a group of people who had common goals, common objectives, and you were doing it in a civil and sportsmanlike manner. Right. Following the rules. And everybody agreed on that. Uh, The same with the debate team or the chess team or things like that. There was a camaraderie that came from the fact that you shared these common goals. And you did it under the same set of rules. And if you didn't like the rules, then you you go do something else. right? You didn't have to play chess or you didn't have to be on the debate team or you didn't have to play tennis or, or football. Football was a little bit looser because there were just so many of us. You know, everybody wanted to be on the football team. Uh, but it was the same with the military. So you get to a certain place and you feel like, okay, we have common goals, common objectives. We have common Guidelines and rules under which we operate and I can get that now some people can't because they would look at the rules as Restrictive like there are people who will say Yeah, I was in the army for eight weeks and then they asked me to leave because they will if you're not that kind of material They have kind of two options for you. They can charge you with an something called an article 15 and they can throw you out or they can say, we're going to give you a, I can't remember the name of the discharge. It's less than honorable discharge, right? It's like the the seminary. The seminary doesn't have a less than honorable discharge. With the seminary. I just say, you're not very priestly. Well, the army has a way of doing that as well. You're just not very soldierly. And so they'll let you go. And they do that because it doesn't help when you have one person that doesn't know how to, how to play by the same rules that everybody else is. It's dangerous, you know. If you if you're if you're at the seminary and you break the rules, nobody's going to die. If you're in the military and you break the rules, in the wrong situation, somebody could die. And uh, so they didn't want people that didn't know how to do that or didn't agree with doing that. That doesn't mean everybody who serves in the military is perfect but it also doesn't mean that everybody who serves in the military is imperfect or it's the great equalizer. And that was my kind of situation, you know, not having a father to guide me. Um, I had to find some place with good rules, something to guide me. The Christian brothers did that to some extent college did that because the rules were, you need to get through college. And in order to get through college, you got to do these things. And then the military, of course, uh, was perfect for that. You know, you signed up. I signed up for five years. I, I I signed up for five years so that I could go to the National Security Agency, and it was perfect for me. Followed the rules. Um, went to all the schools that I want. One of the I think I've told you this in the past, that one of the things that's good about the military, and in my case, the U.S. Army, is that they will let you volunteer for anything. So I volunteered for all the schools that I could before knowing I was going to volunteer for Vietnam. And they let me do it. Well, some they weren't excited. Yeah, you want to go there? You know, you, you really want to go there? Oh well, yeah, I want to go there. So they let you do it. They they won't hold you back in in the sense that they're they're not going to say ah, you don't need to go to ranger school. Let's just let's just go to you know. You don't need to go to language school. Don't tell you you want to go to language school. All right, we'll get you in the next class. I'll set you up and. The next thing you know, you're flying to San Francisco, and you're looking for a place called Two Rock Ranch. Two so, Rocks. Two Rock. I don't know why it was called Two Rock. It's uh, it's outside of a place called Petaluma, California. Petaluma, California is known because it has the World Championship Arm Wrestling Competition every year. That's what they do in Petaluma, California. And Two Rock Ranch is an agency site outside of there, uh, where you do your. It's called Teot. Target area orientation training, and it's you doing training, the training, the eight weeks of training that you get before you go to Vietnam. It's the last thing you go language schools before that Ranger Jump School. All of those are before the last thing that you do is teat at Two Rock Ranch, California. And if you went out, if you went out on a Saturday night with the other guys, and you met a, a young lady in a bar, she'd say, uh, "Are you from Two Rock?" Because it was the only military, it wasn't, they knew it was military, and it was the only military base within, I don't know, 200 miles. I had one ask me uh, one time, are you from Two Rock? And I said, yes. And she said, do you work on the submarines? <laughs> I said, what? And she said, well, it's a submarine base, right? I didn't have to, you don't have. didn't know how to tell her that the Two Rock Ranch is 45 miles away from the coast. So if it was an underground submarine base, there was a lot of traveling a submarine would have to do to get there. So, but they had—that's what was one of the things that they spread around Petaluma that it was a submarine base.
0: Ah, in the army. Yeah. So the army had submarines.
1: The army had submarines (laughs) with a base underground, forty-five miles away from the coast. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Well, she sounds like a winner. Uh, Perspectives is uh, the theme of this chapter. And uh, tell me, have you in your life had any great awakenings uh, when it comes to perspective that that once you realized a new perspective, it changed your life?
1: you know i uh, i'm, I'm going uh, i'm almost going to take a pass on answering that question and the reason is almost everything of any significance that has occurred in my life required a change in perspective uh, getting married getting divorced buying a house your first one having children having more than one child <laughs> Uh, adopting uh, adopting uh, foster babies, uh, traveling as much as I did. You know the the NSA walking up and saying, "Hey, we'd like you to leave the NSA so you can become an <laughs> independent contractor."
0: You're not NSA enough. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're not NSA. You're not you're not spy, spily enough. Um, uh, so uh, almost, uh, I suppose, at my age, I can look back. And not count, uh, not be able to count the number of situations that in life occurred and required me to change my perspective. And in all of that, what you find out is, it isn't about you.
0: (laughs) That's one of my favorite um, sayings. When I watched uh, Dr. Strange and the teacher says that Uh before she goes off and into the other dimension. Uh She says, that's what she learned. She had like a really long life Uh and that was the most important thing she learned. It's not about you. Yeah, yeah, It's (laughs) It's like, Oh yeah, that's
1: true. I think that the, uh, you know, I I mentioned that my father had uh, one of his sayings was it's uh, changes in personal. Right. I don't know. I don't recall him ever saying it's not about you. You just, after a while, you learn all of this stuff that's around, that's happening around you, all these babies that are being born and taking up space in your house. It's, a, it's not about you. It's just not about you. And once you get used to that idea, it frees you up to make the best, the best of every one of those situations as you can. And, and, That really changes your perspective on life once you realize it's not about you and when you make it not about you it's an opportunity to take life by the proverbial horns and do with it what you can what you're capable of doing and that's when you find out that the big difference between experiencing that and not experiencing it is the confidence I think I don't know whether you asked me in the last one whether was it courage or something like that.
0: You you were talking about uh, gross courage and gross stupidity. Yeah. But what, what allowed you to say yes to things was right. confidence.
1: Right, and that's what it is. That's where it comes from. Uh, it comes from the constantly changing perspective, as a result of you real, realizing it's not about you. And then your choice is what to do about it, and you can do nothing, you can do everything, or you can figure out what the right thing to do is and do that. And that's where the confidence comes in, because the right thing to do might be the hardest thing.
0: Yeah, well, you Yeah, an example of that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you always come over these things, and you're, in, you're in, talking right?
0: about you're talking about I'm very. S- 74 years old. Give me an example. Let me see. Generalities don't help.
1: All right. So here's an example. (laughs) Uh, I was traveling. There was a point at which, so what we knew about uh, my last wife was that when the girls grew to be school age, she didn't push them away, but like, okay, now they're your problem, you know, that kind of thing. But the other thing that we knew about her, is she loved babies. She just loved babies and she's the perfect person to give babies love and they love her back. So I didn't know if we were just going to keep having babies or what. And one of the times that, um, that I was traveling, uh, she went to Catholic charities and she signed up to become a foster parent. And you don't do that as an individual. Your, your spouse has to agree. So she forged my signature which is pretty tough to do, honestly. (laughs) And so I came home, and we were having our first dinner back home, and she brought this all up, and she said, we're getting our first baby. And I said, what? She said, I signed us up for Catholic Charities Foster Baby. By this time, I was probably agnostic, not quite an atheist, and not that I felt like I was that close to the church. And I said, how did you do that? And so she told me. Well, a week later, we had our first baby. And it was literally five days out of the hospital. And we had to keep them for a period of time until the paperwork was completed and that baby's adoptive parents could take over. We would turn it over to that baby's adoptive parents. We didn't meet the birth parents. We didn't meet the adoptive parents. We just had to hang on to that baby, take good care of it, make sure that it was at least healthy enough to turn it over to a new set of parents we had that baby for two weeks. So there was late nights, wake-ups, baby feeding, baby walking, baby, things like that. But I could tell the challenge of all that made her really happy. And although I had thought to myself, "Well, we're probably not gonna have any more babies. I got six, you know, we're good. Um, It was a complete change of perspective. And the choice you had several choices, including rebellion. Like, oh hell no, we're not going to do this. On the far end, it could have been um, it could have been as radical as, okay, I'm going to quit my job, and we're just going to stay home and take care of babies, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a nice perspective in the middle, and the perspective included making sure that everybody in that family had a role to play in the development of these new babies. The shortest time we would have one of these boot new babies was around two weeks. That's how long, if everything was going perfect. The longest time is we had a pair of twins for 12 months. By the end of it, they were calling me Daga. And uh, that was literally the last one. That was the the straw that broke the like, Oh, this is too hard emotionally. It's just too hard to let them go with that. They great parents. We ended up selling them our van because they literally did not have a vehicle big enough for a family, and it was broken down anyway, and we sold them, uh, our big family truckster, it was about time to let go anyway. But the other benefit is once we made that decision and your perspective changed on, you're a different kind of family now, right? You're not just that unit of a mother, father, six kids, you're a unit of mother, father, six kids, and one that shows up for as little as two weeks, and as another that shows up, a pair that shows up for as much as 12 months and so it started we started watching the children evolve around the expectation that we were going to have a baby that required a carriage and a, and a you know baby carrier that had to be accommodated at soccer games and had to you had to answer the girls got so good at answering questions uh, about why we always had new babies you know and then they disappear uh, but it turned the girls into the best babysitters in the world. They got all really good. They knew what to do with babies. You could count on them to help. And so it was a completely different perspective. I thought at that time, at the point that uh, Toby Renee started school, I thought, ah, this is kind of a different place. You know, all I have to worry about now is what time they get home, what time we have to be at soccer practice, and where we have to be on weekends. Suddenly there was baby in the, the you know, in all of it. And then there was, and it and it was constant. It, there was always a baby. <laughs> and for, I think it was over, it was four or five years that we had 24 different, and I'm counting the twins as one, 24 mm-hmm. different foster babies packages. Um, and so it was another four years of completely different perspective, different goals, different, you know, And making sure that your children, your own, your blood children, were uh, confident enough of their expectations of what you owed to them in terms of a relationship. You know, because babies are demanding, they're time-consuming, they're demanding, and so you wanted to make sure that all the others weren't feeling cheated by all of this, and apparently not, because the the three youngest, of course, now have what four, six, eight, and one of them nine children between them, and um, and so it worked out good for everybody. But it, that that I think for me is probably the most recent example. Uh, not counting the last divorce, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So. so i think I think there's been others, But, yeah, that's probably one of the most dramatic ones uh, for for uh, changing perspective from being a dad of six kids to being a foster dad of twenty four every new yeah. baby that yeah. comes your way,
1: yeah, and what was uh, really interesting is Vera, Laura was really good, like, she would start a little notebook with their feeding times and what food they liked and what food they spit up on and things like that. So when she turned that baby over to back to the foster, to the um, Catholic charities to turn over the foster parents, uh, she would have a little adoptive, I'm sorry, the the adoptive parents. uh, She would have a book for them with all the information that they needed. And then at some point uh, they invited us to their annual Christmas party and at the Christmas party, the foster parents were there and the adoptive parents were there, uh, you, you know. So we'd get to meet the foster parents. And for, I don't know. Adoptive parents. I'm sorry, adoptive parents. <laughs> uh, for um, 10 or 12 years after that, we watched these babies grow. We could, you know, they could go to school and we'd see them. Their parents, they didn't know who we were at first. But after the first two or three Christm- Christmases, their parents would have told them, these these are the folks that brought you to us. So. It was a really good, it was a good experience.
0: Yeah, it's fun. I know I taught preschool for several years. So I think about that because the preschoolers that I taught would have been the same age as my kids. And I, you know, look at them now as adults. And I think, you know, what those preschoolers might have turned out to be. And kind of makes me wonder. I can't imagine.
1: (laughs) Well, there's a bunch of them. If uh, Toby just turned, Toby Renee just turned 34. So she was five. So they're in their late 20s and early 30s now.
0: So Pretty cool. Yeah. Perspective. If you hadn't been there to help them out, what would have happened? You don't know?
1: Yeah, you don't know. You know, that was a point at which uh, there wasn't as big a discussion about uh, pro-life versus pro-choice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, each, each of these, uh, you know, a Catholic Charities' position uh, on the matter was, if you want to have this baby, we'll help you get adopted parents. You know, if you don't want to have an abortion, or they were, they were the, one of the options. Mm-hmm. And they handled it very, very well. And like I said, by that time, I was probably, I was going to say agnostic, but by that time I was an atheist. And so whether or not Catholic Charities was doing this had nothing to do with it. It had to do with they needed help, and they needed volunteers. And as a matter of fact, what finally ended the relationship, aside from the fact that we had these babies for 12 months, is uh, Laura wanted to keep them, the twins. And they said, uh, no, that's not how this works. They have a set of adoptive parents. and um, And so she got mad. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to do this. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we were all kind of I think the kids and I were all kind of saddened by the idea that we weren't gonna have any more because the, the girls like th- there were people on our block that at the time would pay our girls twenty dollars an hour to babysit. That's how good they were, you know. And and the kids they babysat for just loved them. Just good training. Good training.
0: All right. Well, that's uh, Wait, I have a question. Mm-hmm.
1: You said you can think of other situations, and that's because you've heard a lot of my stories.
0: Where you've had a change in perspective? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's lots.
1: Name one. <laughs> we don't have to talk about it. I'm just curious what you see as changes in perspective.
0: Uh, your last serious relationship.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a good one.
0: That's a good one. That was a... Big change for you. Yep. And you learned a lot. And I think you... I think you understood the value of self-confidence after that, too. Yeah.
1: So you're going through uh, an interesting change in your life
0: Mm.
1: that requires a change in perspective. Mm -hmm. And so far you're doing pretty well. But you and I both know that it's not quite over yet. And you have a couple of situations between your husband and your mother that could result in a massive amount of change for you within the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. How's that going to change your perspective?
0: Well, I'll just talk about how it has already. Um, My husband and I have been married for 39 years and I attribute a big part of that to, we don't micromanage each other. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he does, his thing and he does you know what he enjoys and I support that and and same for me I do what I jo- enjoy and he supports that and um, we've never tried to tell each other oh maybe you should do this or you should do that even when I would go to him and ask for advice or whatever you know he would always say, well you could do this or that it's your choice you know um, he was we just don't micromanage each other now, that he's just, you know, in this position where he's uh, not really, he's losing the ability to take care of himself. And that's hard for anybody, Mm -hmm. but especially a man uh, who has always been the breadwinner of the family and, you know, uh, the dad, and just had that role of Mm -hmm. the masculine role. And, And now it's, you know, I'm holding the door for him instead of the other way around. And, and it, you know, kind of, it's hard. It's hard for him. Uh, so we're both having to learn a new perspective mm-hmm. that I am capable of taking care of us as a family. And that's, you know, that's kind of new for both of us. <laughs> and it was always, I was always, I hated talking on the phone. I hated making phone calls. And if I could make him do it or get him to do it, I would do that. Now it's impossible. He can't make phone calls. Mm-hmm. So I have to do all of that. I have to speak up for him when when he needs something and he can't get that message out to, to whoever uh, needs to know that. I have to either make phone calls or go speak up for him, You know, get the doctors or the nurses, uh, You know, we were at the emergency room and we'd been there for hours. And I was like, he needs to go home and get some rest. And, you know, and I started really making a fuss and I don't do that. I'm an introvert. I'm a quiet person who just waits their turn and follows the rules. But he needed this. So I spoke up. I went to the nurses and I complained. And I said, you know, if you cannot do something for him, uh, right now, then we're going home. Well, do you want to speak to the charge nurse? Well, yes, of course I do. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing, but now I know I'm going to going to do that. So they sent the charge nurse to us and um, I had that conversation with him. I was like, you know, we've been here for several hours. He's tired. He needs to go home and rest. And, and then he said, oh, I have a room for you. You don't have, you know, I have a room for you right now. Okay. <laughs> so it's like you have to complain and be a squeaky wheel a squeaky get wheel that. gets the grease. But I've never been like that. You know I I would always if if I needed something, I would ask you to go do it, mm-hmm. right? Uh <laughs> that's why I love going to dinner with you because I can just tell you here's what I want, and that's what I want, like, and and this is wrong, and you would take care of it. You make it right. Um, and that's kind of how I was. But now I have to be the one making things right. it's a big change. Um, But I, you know, you do it for love.
1: Well, y- yes, you do it for love, but you also do it because you can. How long have you and I <laughs> known each other? 10 years. 10 years? So 2013?
0: Well, 2012, actually. 2012. So 11
1: years. So you've you've heard me say this before, but I've watched you evolve significantly, not just traditional 12 years worth of evolution, but I've seen you over those uh, 10 or 11, however long it is, years, um, become more confident, become more knowledgeable, become a little bit more of an extrovert, not not more extrovert than introvert, but able to handle those situations. And the confidence to say, take care of this for me. Right. I don't want to do that. Take care of it for me. <laughs> and that's actually a good place to be. So honestly, I think the timing in terms of your development is there, there is no perfect timing for a family member with cancer or in your case, one family member with cancer and one family, family member suffering from a stroke. But in terms of the timing in, in the context of your personal development it's perfect the timing almost accommodates the idea that you are at a point in your life where you're almost beyond ready to take on the challenges associated with what's going on in your life right
0: now well and that's the uh benefit of taking a overview perspective rather than being in the middle of it you know, yesterday when I was looking for advice, I went to a credit union, I went to a bank, and I went to you. And each one I asked, I need advice, and I came to you because I'm in the middle of this and I can't see everything. Um, but you can if I, you know. <laughs> and and I would explain it to each person, and the first one couldn't help me. The second one was like, uh, you need to talk to somebody else who's not here. Uh, and then you were like, oh. Well, here's what you need to do. And this is why it makes sense to do it that way. And you knew that I needed a logical answer and that's what you gave me. Here's the logic, here's why it works, here's how it works, here's what's, you know, what you should do. And you didn't expect me to just do it because you said so, mm-hmm. but you explained it and gave me that logic to hold on to. And that is what made all the difference. It went, I went from being, I don't know what to do, to I know exactly what to do now. And it, because you helped me to gain that perspective over you know, the whole picture rather than just being in the middle of it.
1: So for a variety of reasons, if this was two years ago, you and I would never have had that conversation. You would have never felt the need to have that conversation with me or anybody else. Now you look at it and say, I'm going to have this conversation with a bunch of people, and the first the I don't first have time, a choice,
0: and exa- I have a tight timeline. <laughs> I-
1: exactly, that's <laughs> yeah. the point. So you're ready. You're as ready for this as you are for anything else. Because two years ago, you would have either said to Kevin, "Take care of this for me," or you would have said to me, "Take care of this for me." Him on the personal side, me on the business side. Uh, but now you go to person number one, and you tell them what you want, and they can't. They can't give it to you. It's not their fault. Right. You got a person number 2 and they can't give it to you. You come to person number 3 and as usual, you don't have to ask me for advice. I will give it to you.
0: <laughs> just ask a question Yeah. And, just ask the question and, <laughs> and,
1: and you'll get and a you'll
0: fill up an hour.
1: Right. You'll get the response <laughs> that you may or may not need. But what I'll do it is in a way that will allow you to make a decision. We do we don't up until recently, we never talked about each other's respective finances. That was not our business. You're financial business was with your husband. Mine was with my accountant, right? So we haven't had those conversations, but you knew that I've managed to get this far. So I might know a little bit about it. And so you asked the question, you, you got the answer, not necessarily that you wanted or needed, but it was helpful that you could understand and make further decisions about it. And you walked out last night going like, okay, I'm going to take care of some of this stuff. And you did today. When we talked today, you said you had done this, 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 this and took care of it that's the Shelly that that is different from the Shelly that I first met back in 2012
0: yeah back then I was more about getting people to do what I wanted them to do by you know kind of bringing them into the fold Uh and and supporting their Uh strengths. uh and like, for instance, when I put together the, uh, the web series uh-huh. and I bring in the camera guy and i and I point everybody at him and I say, he's the camera guy. Look what he can do. You know? And then of course he wanted to do it because everybody's like, yeah, that's him. He's the camera guy. She said so. And you know, then I point at this guy and I'm like, this guy, he's this, you know, this, he's, this is his strength. And I was like, oh yeah, I see that. And so that you know, just bringing everybody together, but it wasn't about me; it was about the team. Mm-hmm. Now I'm like, it's not about me, but I can still make it happen by myself. Mm-hmm. I don't have to have the team. If, you know, I can do it.
1: Well, it, even if you did have a team, your position has te- has, has changed from team coordinator to team leader. Uh, the the reason you had three conversations yesterday. Was you've, you're leading this team now, mm. and and I need your advice. Don't expect you to do it. Don't expect you to take it. I just need to know what if you were in the same situation, what would you do? And then I'll take it from there. That's team leadership. So, again, the difference between. The Shelly that I met in 2012, and the Shelly thing that I know.
0: <laughs> well, I have all of these skills. So if you need somebody <laughs> to be a team leader, apparently I'm good at it now. Yeah, you are. <laughs> just... All right. Well, this was chapter five. If you have not yet watched chapters one through four, please do so. Uh, they're all in one playlist. It's a video podcast, and uh, we would love for you to follow along throughout the entire A Gypsy's Kiss book with us. Uh, we will be going next week to chapter six and on and on just like that. And we hope that, uh, that you get a lot out of it. And that's why we wanted to read each chapter individually and really dive deeply into not just the story itself, but all of the personalities that are involved in all the things that we learned, all the lessons we learned from not only living it but also writing about it. writing
1: about it yeah yeah Yeah, i think it was a it was a good process uh, that we went through when we decided to write it uh i just don't know how we managed to take one of the shortest chapters in the book and turn it into a (laughs) one-hour oh
0: my gosh yes okay so like i said if you haven't watched the others yet make sure you uh, go look at the playlist and watch the other videos and uh, leave comments. Let us know what you think about them. If you have stories to share, write to us at stories at agkmedia.studio and make sure you get on our news ma- newsletter list because we send out information and behind the scenes stuff and really, really great stuff in our newsletter each week. And that's at news.agkmedia.studio. And again, that was in the crawl earlier. So, uh, There it is again. And it's in the description box as well. So join the community and um, become a part of what we're doing here at Our Story, Your Story. All right. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters.